What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Alex Stewart who runs strategy and content for a wonderful football, in brackets, soccer, media empire called Tifo Football. Alex, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much. We're going to talk about some of the most amazing and interesting and intriguing concepts of the modern game of football today and see how they might relate to the advertising and marketing business. I'm very familiar with uh, with Tifo. I love the videos that you put on YouTube. Some of them have Thank had you. hundreds of thousands of views. But for those who are not familiar with Tifo, could you tell us a bit about it, why it was established and what you're trying to achieve with it? Yeah, so we um, we started off uh, as a, a kind of um, written content creation site, which was to drive user acquisition for an app. That was discontinued when we realized that people had more of an appetite for the content than perhaps they did for the app. About three years ago, Joe, who's our creative director, Joe Devine, uh, decided that he would like to make videos. And it was really just a, an experiment to see if the kind of written material that we were doing would transpose across to a different format. Obviously, YouTube has a really nice low barrier to entry and it took off and it was very successful. And, and part of that, I think, was uh, we started doing tactical videos where we used a fairly simple kind of dots and lines form uh, along with nice illustrations to explain tactical concepts quite neatly and succinctly and it was a nice way of getting around copyright issues to do with match footage and so on. Gradually over time we basically realized that the interest and also the commercial opportunities very much resided in video as opposed to written content. Um, mm. We kind of cornered a, a market to a degree in that respect and we've just been sort of driving and refining that product now for pretty much the last two years. I've, I've been in place since January of 2018 and I came out of doing digital strategy for a coffee app but I had also worked for TIFO as a freelance football writer in that period as well. So I was conversant with the company and, and the product, but I had a bit of a, a strategy background as well, which was something that the company hadn't really addressed at that point. It's funny, you know, I've been familiar with you guys for over a year or so now, and the way that you go about things and the passion and the nerdery, I'm like, is this a business or is this just a bunch of people who love this game? Like, but it's a fully fledged business, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is a fully fledged business, but I think one of the, the things that's that's worth pointing out, particularly on a, a strategy podcast, is that it was initially, um, I mean, certainly in terms of the video uh, content creation, it was driven by passion in the first instance. Um, and, you know, my particular interest is tactics and analytics writing. And we just wanted to make those videos because we felt there was a gap in the market for that kind of explanation. We wanted to try and see if video worked, sure, but it was more about disseminating our interest in that material and trying to get it to a wide audience. So it, mm -hmm. it is driven by nerdery, as you put mm -hmm. it, and I think people who know me would realize that I am quite nerdish about these things. And then we sort of had to wrap a business strategy around it, which is why you know, I was working for the company as a writer before I was working for them as a strategist. Mm. Um, because that, that kind of commercial aspect very much came about as a realization that, hey, you know, we've got something that people are interested in. This is something that we should be able to leverage for revenue um, and explore the opportunities around that. But 
in the first instance, it, you know, like I say, it was driven to initially to engage people to, to sign up for an app, which I think sort of showed where, where the drivers were to start with um, as the content mm-hmm. became more of a thing. Then we thought, well, how, how are we going to harness this and, and turn it into, you know, a, an actual commodified product rather than just something that people really like to watch? Because obviously these things have to yeah. sustain, don't they? Yeah. What are your revenue streams? So there are three main ones. We have obviously just straightforward revenue that's supplied via YouTube and, and Google Ads. We have sponsored content on the channel itself. So we're currently in partnership with The Athletic, who are sponsoring videos with us and also sponsoring our podcast. And we've worked with other commercial entities in the sports space. And then we make third-party white-label content or co-produced content. So we were working for the last two and a half seasons with the Bundesliga, for example. So we'd make a fortnightly tactics video for them, uh, which would go out on their platform. Uh, We would cross-promote that. And, you know, it it was great for exposure and kind of brand recognition for us as well, because obviously working with the the Bundesliga is very prestigious. But that's another revenue stream for us as well. I mean, I feel like it's, uh, it is quite, intellectual in some ways, but also extremely accessible. You know, you cover this tactical analysis. Some of the videos are, I would say, philosophical. Some of them are investigative. Some of them are straight up explainers. How do you approach your own content? How do you know what you're going to make a video about, for example? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I think that the tactics stuff is fairly straightforward in the sense that there are certain teams that are interesting to look at because they're doing something interesting. In terms of the other stuff, I mean, for example, some of the more investigative things, we, we work with a journalist called James Montague, who has got a book that is published, I think this week at time of recording, on ultras, the sort of the, the fan groups that get engaged in, in activism and uh, in some instances, hooliganism and so on. And he's a, he's a very well-regarded and well-respected investigative journalist within the sports space. And he wanted to work with us because our our reach in terms of videos meant that he would be able to talk to a wider audience. I think one of the things that we seek to do is to look at what can explain the wider context of football in an interesting and engaging way. So that might be how a club's doing financially. It might be how the transfer market operates. It might be the story of uh, uh, the Iraqi national football team who won the Asian Cup in 2007. There's lots and lots of stuff around what actually happens between the white lines. The tactics videos take care of that. But the broader scope is, you know, it's that sense that sport can be a prism through which you can interrogate other issues or there is enough stuff around the ownership of a football club, for example, for that to be an interesting topic in itself. And I think what we've seen is that fans of any given sport, I mean, we we do it mostly in football, but they are interested in the context. They're interested in what surrounds the game as a purely a kind of spectator entertainment thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And they want to understand that. And of course, the, the format of the videos, given that they are, you know, image-led, graphics-led, makes that stuff immediately more comprehensible to people. There's something quite opaque about a 3,000-word article, uh, even if it's beautifully written and has great data viz around it and stuff. It's still, it feels like quite a commitment, whereas you can sit and watch a a 10-minute video that we've produced. You'll come away having learned the same amount of stuff, but it, it feels like it's an easier process. 
Yeah. And, and from a brand point of view, as far as your own brand goes, you're definitely using what the specialists would refer to as distinctive assets. Uh, you're using them very well. Like your videos are very recognizable. So for, and for people who have, are not familiar with Tifa, the, the top four videos, uh, all of which have had over a million views on YouTube, include why can't Barcelona fill their stadium? The real reason Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea, Thiago Motta's 272 formation explained, how Pep Guardiola improves his players. So even just in the top four, there's a variety of, of, of focus there. What I'd love to do is pick some of the key concepts and see how we can, uh, I don't know, find clues for people in their day jobs that do not involve sport at all. And I think the concept to start with could be game theory as far as the playing a long game versus a short game. Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that we've seen in football and, and sports more generally, but we'll, we'll stay in my lane because <laughs> it's easier mm. for me, um, is is the idea of football club strategizing. And I think it's still something that, that a lot of football clubs don't do that well, but there's certainly a recognition that off-field success and for example, brand recognition, revenue raising, uh, commercial arrangements with big sportswear companies, tours into different places to expand new markets, but also the kind of strategy that goes into squad development, recruitment, uh, having a youth team and a pathway from the youth team to the first team, all of these kinds of things are concepts that people need to consider now in sports. You know, it's it's hugely competitive. Obviously, there's a vast amount of money at stake. And in the past, there was really quite a divide between the way a football club was run off the pitch um, in terms of, you know, there'll be a set number of people who want to turn up and watch us. We might sell some kits, although that was really only a thing that started, I suppose, in the, the kind of maybe the late 80s, early 90s. Some corporate sponsorship, again, that kind of came in quite slowly because of issues around shirt sponsorship and so on. And then there was the on-the-pitch stuff, and the manager was completely in charge of that, had a very small coaching staff. And, and there was a really significant divide between the two. And really, the only times that the two sides would talk to each other was when the manager wanted money to buy a footballer. And now, I think there's very much a recognition that actually this is a holistic enterprise and that you know the use of analytics for example seeking to uh leverage analytics to find undervalued players or seek these you know kind of marginal gains within the context of a football match itself means that clubs are starting to think a lot more strategically about how they do stuff and it's not simply a question of you know what 11 players do i send out onto a pitch and how do i best beat the opposition because football games are, you know, there's a series of questions and answers, isn't it, between two teams. So mm -hmm. I might set my team up in this way. The manager of the opposition team probably has a sense I'm going to do that. So I'm going to tweak some things. And that that's what a match is. It's a series of, of questions and answers posed to each other. But that's become increasingly less divorced from what happens off the pitch. So in that way, you've got, I suppose, kind of the, the product ultimately is who wins the game and how that's achieved but then there's suddenly all of this other stuff going on in the background 
and it bleeds into it. You know, it bleeds into who you're going to buy, why you're buying particular kinds of players, ways of acquiring players, all of the commercial things that are going on. And sometimes clubs don't get that balance right. In the case, for example, of Manchester United that have maybe spent far too much time thinking about the commercial side uh, and less about the football side or Liverpool who seem to do it really ably. And, and harness analytics, but also have a really strong commercial presence, think very carefully about emerging markets, have built a very strong brand identity. I mean, they are building on a pre-existing brand identity, of course, but they've really leveraged that very cleverly um, through social channels, for example, to, to kind of create a whole sense of a football club, which is not just the 11 players that pull the kit on a particular given day. Mm, yeah, I think even hearing you discuss the history of the commercialization of the sport is something that a lot of companies that I know, especially agencies that I know, I think could just sit down and maybe spend an hour and, and, and read about the history of the commercialization of football, especially in England, and see if there's anything that's analogous to what you could do here because agency world tends to have very few revenue streams compared to many other not all businesses, but to many other businesses. Now, what, what are the symptoms of a, a football club playing a short game in 2020? Well, I mean, the, there's no question at all that on-field success is, um, is the key driver of sustained success. But, but a lot of clubs will, and this, this is something that is considerably more dangerous the further down the professional game you go, but a lot of them will throw large amounts of money at their playing staff particularly in order to try and achieve a short-term goal, which would be promotion to the division above. Or if you're in the top division, winning that division or qualifying for European competition, if we're talking about the UK. And, and unfortunately, if that doesn't work, then all of a sudden you're, you're left with a situation that is financially unsustainable. And so you'll have a lot of players who, you know, th these are individuals who are ultimately, I'm sure a lot of them really love football, but, you know, they are employees and they are doing the job of being a footballer. And so there's not a great deal of loyalty necessarily unless the club is able to engender that loyalty. And I think this is another really interesting point to make about, you know, clubs doing it well. So, for example, Liverpool, to, and I will come back to them again and again, I'm sure, because I, I would say them and probably Norwich City are the two best-run football clubs uh, in the Premier League at the moment for a host of different reasons. But what Liverpool have been able to do with their players is is create a real sense of kind of almost employee buy-in, which is a very weird thing to say about footballers because, they, you know, they wear the shirt, they kiss the badge, they have a relationship with the fans, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the reality is a lot of them don't. What Liverpool have been able to do, partly through Jurgen Klopp being a brilliant man-manager, but also partly through the way these players are co-opted into the sense of representing Liverpool as a club, as a brand, is, is to foster that sense of loyalty and of pride and to be able to retain their services and to make them proud to represent the club that they do. Um, it, it can be very easy to see footballers as kind of mercenaries who move from one club to another, and a lot of them are. And I think the best clubs are the ones that that manage to create that that tangible sense of belonging to a squad rather than simply being somebody who turns up and fulfills the tasks that are expected of them and then goes home at the end of the day. Like any company, you know, <laughs> any company is facing that battle. 
So I think if you if you then end up where you've kind of, you know, betted heavily on the short term, you can end up like, for example, Portsmouth did under Harry Redknapp. I think it was probably 2004, five, but it may have been the year afterwards where they'd had a good cup run and they felt like they could push on, but they, they hired a lot of players on big long-term contracts on significant wages to attract them to that particular club, which is not enormously glamorous or successful or hasn't been in um, going back to the fifties. It was, I think 1951, 52, but, but not since then really it didn't work. You know, they didn't achieve what they wanted to achieve. So the revenue didn't come in as a result of that. And all of a sudden they've, they've got a group of players who don't want to be there, who are earning huge amounts of money uh, and the club went bust. Uh, and and that's the balance. That's why I think strategy is so important for football clubs now. That that the economic risk and reward of gambling heavily to try and secure favourable outcomes on the pitch, in lieu of favourable outcomes off the pitch further down the line. You know, if you get that wrong, it can be absolutely disastrous, uh, and football clubs will fold. And obviously, there's a there's a social and a community fallout to that happening in the same way that you know yes obviously if a business goes to the wall its employees um, lose their jobs which is very sad but there isn't necessarily the same sense that that a, a business will you know is sort of the thing that ties a community together in the same way that a football club does maybe in the north of england with some of the heavy industry that would be analogous um you know the the, the closing of a shipyard or a coal yard for example um right. But, but less and less so in the modern economy. I think football clubs are unusual in that regard. So the short, the, sh- the idea of the short game is essentially defined by a focus on short-term results, which could be the next game, or it could be achieving a certain position or promotion for a particular season, but making reckless decisions that will harm you beyond the short term, which could be just a couple of months away because you don't actually have a philosophy or a long-term point of view on what you're trying to achieve. That's a short game, right? Yeah, absolutely that, yes. And and you're right, it, it could be used in a sort of seasonal context in the sense of, you know, I'm going to play this player even though he's borderline injured because I desperately need to win this next game. And then the player is properly injured. You don't win the next game, and all of a sudden you've you know you've lost your striker for the next six months rather than for the next three. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of very short term version of it, and the much well, the the fairly longer term version is what I've described already, with essentially stacking your squad with a certain kind of player, failing to meet those goals, and you know that that's why clubs need to have not just a when people talk about football tactics generally they're talking about how a manager sets his team up Mm. but increasingly clubs are are having to be strategic as well as tactical yeah i think there's two small ironies that i would point out one is how there's a huge narrative with most coaches about just focusing on the next game as a way to say don't (laughs) focus on the big picture we just have to focus on the next game but i think as far as the the agency world and i do want to find some connections here i think there's an even bigger irony in that uh, football clubs, uh, their employees, at least the employees we see in public, are massively paid. And yet a lot of those coaches don't just see them as employees. They see them as people to develop. Yes, they might sell them and that's got a whole other uh, dynamic going on that people in, like people in business don't tend to get sold. Uh, but I feel that in the agency world, I don't hear enough talk about developing 
people as they come forward as like a key management idea. It's really like, no, you're an employee. We give you money. You give us time. You do good work or you get fired. Uh, but to see some of the most elite people in the world, first of all, practicing their craft because that's how you get good in a game. And then having coaches talking about the need to develop and bring people through. I mean, if they can do it at, at a, you know, where the stakes are really high with a lot of money on the table, surely an agency <laughs> with 50 people could think like that too. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think it's a, I think it's development in, in two senses of the word. You know, if you've got a, if you've got a player or indeed say, a, I don't know, a junior copywriter or designer or something, part of the way you want them to develop is to get better. But you also want them to develop a sense of how you work within a team, how you represent the company, the brand that you're working for. Because ultimately, if you're going into, you know, if you're going into pitch something, you know, once you get to that point, you are representing your company, you're representing your brand and the way you carry yourself, the way you talk about things. And I'm not saying you need to speak eloquently or your presentation needs to be really smooth. I'm talking about that kind of fire that some people have and some people don't. And I think it's a lot easier to to create that sense of, of pride and buy-in when you're fostering those links. So you're developing somebody not just as a kind of a, a skill set, but also as an individual who then feels a reciprocity for that development. And I think the best football coaches are the ones who don't just take you know, a mid-level Premier League player and turn them into a top-level Premier League player because some of that is, yes, some of that is to do with coaching ability. Some of that is to do with age profiles and physical training and all of these other variables. But also the ones who really look like they care. You know, you can tell. And there is, <clears throat> there's that kind of cliche about, you know, well, this team won because they wanted it more. But if you can, if you can do both of those things then your football team is going to be more successful. And it, it's exactly the same as within in any business sphere. If you can mm. if you can get people to buy into the ideology, I mean, do agencies have ideologies? Maybe some of them. Um, so, but if you yeah, if you can get people to buy into your brand promise, say, as a as a maybe a cleaner way of putting it, they are going to perform better. And then on top of that, they're going to be more willing to, to take on greater responsibility to, you know, you want a team where everybody is a leader to some degree in the sense that mm -hmm. the very least of taking personal responsibility for the tasks that they've been allotted. And there is no difference there between a football team and an agency creative team. Yeah. And if there's a clear philosophy, and I don't think the majority of agencies have clear philosophies, but if there's a clear philosophy, it attracts people who want to achieve and strive for that philosophy. They will feel that there's a direction that they're going in, which is important for human psychology. And it can reduce friction because you're not in every meeting going like, what are we doing here? We're in another existential crisis that this one project is setting off in this entire company. So I totally relate to that. Jürgen Klopp as a concept. What are the three most interesting traits that he brings to his management style that might help someone in a, a day job that's very removed from football. And obviously Jurgen Klopp is the, the manager of uh, Liverpool. So he is, I mean, he's a fascinating character. I think it's difficult to pick three. He's okay. So he's tactically very astute. He has a style of play that he's developed. That style of play is called Gagan pressing, which basically means that his players 
close down the opposition a lot. They try and force mistakes and they look to very quickly spring into a, an attacking situation. The idea being that if the opposition defense is kind of out of position or distracted because they've just won the ball back, then they're at their most vulnerable. But he is also extremely good at manipulating that overall philosophy on a game-by-game basis to tackle individual issues, maximize individual strengths that his team has, or exploit opposition weaknesses. So I would say in that instance, the lesson you can learn there is, is that you have an overall approach. You have a kind of general direction of the way you do stuff, mm-hmm. but you are flexible and responsive circumstantially without losing sight of the way you do things. Mm-hmm. And I think from a from a company perspective, that's a very, you know, so TIFO, for example, we have a way that we want to talk about football within different instances. We'll work with different freelancers. We'll modify the tone slightly if it's more of a commercial job. We will experiment with different art styles, for example, but we never lose sight of the fact that we want to talk about football in this particular way. And we wouldn't compromise doing that in order to work with someone particularly. So I think that balance of being flexible but but having resolve in terms of your overall approach is really important. Klopp is also very good at working with younger players. And this is some part of Liverpool's kind of analytics-driven recruitment is that they can identify younger players who have great potential and then develop them. Some of those players actually will come through the academy. So the two fullbacks, Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson. Robertson was bought from Hull for £8 million when they were relegated. Uh, Alexander-Arnold came through the academy. But these are two young guys who have turned into probably the two best fullbacks in Europe. And he has an ability not just to train those players, but also to get them to accept responsibility. Um, What's really interesting about that point as well, say, for example, with the fullbacks, is that Alexander-Arnold was injured for a game. Was he injured or was he rested? Doesn't matter. The guy who stepped in to take his place is a guy called uh, Nico Williams, um, who is another academy product. And he didn't look overawed by the scenario at all. He was ready to step up and play at the age of 19 in a big game. It was a derby against Everton in the FA Cup. So he had, Klopp has not just got an ability to give responsibility to young people and to allow them to develop themselves. He also lines up who's going to come in afterwards and encourages those players to take responsibility and to be ready for when the opportunity to comes so again i think in terms of how you would expand that out into an agency you know you you want to have a a core group of people who've maybe been with the company for a while and so on but having people who are kind of you know chomping at the bit to get their opportunity who are lined up to step into that role because they've been instructed in how the company operates the way that things should be done and it's kind of like succession planning isn't it so that if you you know if you suddenly lose your top two or three people it doesn't really matter because you've got really young talented hungry individuals ready to step up into that and i think you know businesses can get they can get quite complacent about their talent and i think particularly in creative industries there can become a kind of almost like a 
cult-like thing with a particular individual, you know, who's sort of the, the, the Don Draper thing, you know, he's the one who solves everything and the rest of us just scurry around. Of course, what happens if you then lose that individual is the company can lose its sense of identity, they can lose um, the, the biggest money spinner, all of those things. If you're, if you're already looking at who's going to step up and who's going to take over from that and devolve responsibility to those people, those kind of things cause much less of a ruction than they would do uh, if you weren't doing that. Yeah, and, and they need the ingredients you mentioned before. You need leaders with a specific philosophy and people who can uh, do the role or maybe have played the role and then they need to have a focus on development. I, I know with football that a player might have a 10 to 15 year career if they're lucky. So there's more of a reality check with uh, the clubs to need to bring young talent through and they can make money from them by selling them. So it's not an exact comparison to the agency world yet having those other things in place that you pointed out, it leads to a good, positive, thriving culture. So it's it's amazing that you don't see more of that. Gegenpressing, you mentioned that before. I wonder what the analogies for, for gegenpressing are to the business world. One might be that you... So explain the concept again. So it kind of originates with Total Football, the, the Dutch team of the 1970s. This, this idea that rather than let the opposition have the ball for a period of time, because if it's not anywhere near your goal, it's not really a problem. And then you try and win the ball back as it gets closer to your goal. You actively go after them and you try and hem them in and you try and win the ball back higher and higher up the pitch. And that's pressing. Gagan pressing or counter pressing is at its most extreme form, you almost actively seek to lose the ball in the opposition's defensive third so that you can then very quickly win it back when the opposition are disorganized because they're not arranged defensively. I don't know if I'm explaining this particularly yeah, yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But you know, yeah, norm yeah. normally a defensive line is going to have a back four and they're going to be in a row and they're expecting an attack to come. So if they've just won the ball back, then all of a sudden they're thinking about, oh, okay, well, what can we do now? Should we run forwards? Should we pass it? That's the time to strike because their mindset has switched over from being defensive to being attacking. And that's the point at which if you get the ball back from them, they are then most vulnerable to being attacked themselves. Yeah. I wonder what the analogy... I mean, I don't think this is an exact analogy, but perhaps for an agency, losing the ball could be that they've got an idea that they're trying to make happen and it's getting beaten up in a business park somewhere by a client and you kind of move in with a heavy team into that business park to make sure that the idea survives that meeting and you do that time and time again, which means that maybe more people are out of the office than you would like. But if the payoff is that you make better work more often than not and more efficiently, then maybe that's a, maybe that's, you know, a way to use that concept. Can you think of another way to use yeah. the concept? I, possibly another way to think of it would be, you know, you, you, you set forward plan A and the client is not that, taken with plan A and rebuffs it, but with their own set of ideas. And that's when you swoop in with something that is actually maybe a little more awkward, a little more tricky, but more creatively interesting. And because they've sort of, they, they've got to grips with the idea they don't like the first thing, they're, they're at that point more receptive to something that's a little bit different. Because I think with clients, sometimes you, you, they, 
they want to get their point of view across and they want to be heard, which absolutely as clients is their right. And the point at which they've made their feelings clear about the thing that you've initially posed, best time to sneak in the thing that you're actually really excited about and you left off the drawing board in the first instance. That might be one as well. Mm. So there's also been a bit of debate, especially in the past decade, which is you know where I've been paying more attention to it, between sites that are more focused on possession versus having possession in the right parts of the field or just, you know what, we're not going to keep the ball much because we're not good at it. But when we get it, we're going straight to goal. Yes, absolutely. Because uh, there are periods where one of those ideas becomes the mainstream idea and then someone counters it with some, I guess, probably because of the sports science and the data and analytics that are available now, they, they counter it with a different uh, philosophy and way of operating. Do you have a point of view on where that's at right now? Is it always just going to be an arm wrestle? Like which one's better? Yeah, I don't think there is one that's better. I, I think it's it's predicated on on what your squad is like. And if you've got people that are good at keeping the ball, that maybe can produce moments of magic that win games, that's great. So obviously, you know, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona is a good example of that. If you've got a team that is highly defensively organized, doesn't really want the ball, but can strike ruthlessly in a counter-attack like Diego Simeone's Atletico Madrid, that suits that thing. I guess maybe, you know, one way of looking at it is if if the ball is clients, then different agencies will look to maintain different types of relationships with clients or or have a sort of you know, there there will be there will be agencies that want to have four or five clients. They always work with that client. It sort of becomes they become reliant effectively on having them. And that can become, I think, very sterile. You you still need to have those people who can shake things up and suggest something new and perhaps even something risky that might ultimately lose you that client. But otherwise, you, you become complacent and stuffy and, and it, it doesn't work well. You can have agencies that will leap from project to project and look for different people all of the time and always be chasing the next available opportunity. And sometimes that can be energizing and creatively satisfying. Other times it can be a business nightmare because nothing actually comes through the door and people don't want to work that way all the time. And so I think you, you know, you have to have a a fit in terms of what overall is is sensible in terms of the dynamics of the industry. So certain styles of football will come and go a little bit. You also have to have something that fits the kind of people that you have working for you. You know, if they're all very young and very restless and prepared to put in insane hours chasing projects that are creatively cutting edge, you're going to be able to play like Diego Simeone. You don't need the ball. You're always kind of going for the long opportunity and you keep chancing your arm. If you're more solid, more stable, you know, you're, I think this is probably much more the case for the bigger agencies where there's a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of the, the business side of things is also in client relationships and, and keeping that going and, and holding those hands, then, you know, you, you're going to be more conservative, you're going to be more stable, but it's always worth within those scenarios having people that are prepared to shake stuff up and produce a moment of magic in football cliche. Um, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're just passing the ball backwards and forwards endlessly and you get a draw. 
<laughs> because nobody does anything exciting. Um, and that's, you know, that's a surefire way ultimately of losing a, a client. Because also I think, you know, these, just like football is a match, you, you could, you need to be able to adjust what you're doing based on what your opponent's doing. And, and obviously the relationship between an agency and, and a client isn't adversarial most of the time, <laughs> although I'm fairly sure it is adversarial occasionally. Um, the client is going to change also. They're going to change because their leadership changes or because their relationship, you know, the account manager changes or because they have a, a shift in strategy. And you have to be responsive to that. If, if you don't notice that that change has happened, just like if a football manager in the course of a game doesn't realize that his opponent's suddenly gone to a back three, all of a sudden things are going to go very south for you because something has occurred that you've not noticed. And yeah. if you get too fixed in a mindset and too fixed in a way of working, then it's very, very easy to be surprised by things, particularly if they haven't happened before. Yeah, that analogy relies on the idea that clients are balls. So apologies to all clients out there. But I, I think what I take out of that connects to what we are talking about earlier and that when you know what you're about, when you have a philosophy, then you bring people in that fit it. And I think the nuance that football has is there are certain, I guess, player profiles for positions that mm. probably talk about things in a way that the corporate world doesn't. An example for in the agency world, at least, could be the difference between a sprinter and a marathon runner in that, you know, you come to a big city like New York and I, maybe this has shaken out over the past couple of years because of what's happening in the industry. But uh, when I first came here nine years ago, there were you know, creative directors, ECDs who'd been in the same place for 10 to 20 years, some of them working on one account for five years, making a couple of things a year. I'm sure it's more than a couple. I'm being a bit dramatic. And uh, I know a lot of people who would be horrified at the thought of staying that long in one place, making such little stuff. And they want to be making stuff every month. And so I think thinking about humans in a slightly different way could benefit agencies so that if they were, you know, just they wanted to, to chase the ball and then not keep the ball as in the client, and then you need a certain mentality and bring people in in a way that's honest to what you're trying to achieve. I, I feel like there's a bigger gap there in the corporate world and in the agency world than compared to football now. Yeah, and, and that would be a good point to bring in our friend Jürgen Klopp again, because the, the third thing that I would say about him as a manager is he, he is a profoundly moral person, which, which might sound like an odd thing to say, but bear, bear with me. He has a... So he's a Swabian, he's a, a Lutheran as well, a particular um, strain of, of Christianity. And I think he does everything with a real conviction and a real sense of both the importance of what the club does to the community, but also of his players representing a certain set of ideals. And that translates itself into the enthusiasm with which they go about their work to a degree. I'm not saying that because he's you know, a fairly evangelical Christian, his players play better because I don't believe that. But the, the, the conviction with which he speaks and the intensity that he goes about things and the idea that this is not just a, you know, this is not just a game, this is something to, to believe in and try for and strive for is, is clearly a point of difference with him. You know, all of his former players talk about this intensity and, and there are going to be footballers for whom that environment would be anathema. They're just not suited to playing for that kind of manager. There are footballers who, even if they were suited for that kind of manager, 
they play a totally different style of football. They're not used to pressing. They're not, you know, it would take them time to adapt at the very least if they ever got it. So again, I think if you're looking at, you know, employees, the really important, and, and employees bear some responsibility for this themselves as well, I think, is that when you when you sign somebody or you put yourself forward to be signed, i.e. get a job or, you know, go for an interview, it's really important to work out whether you are going to fit that place. You know, are you somebody who wants to sit and make four or five pieces of work for the same client for 20 years? Or are you somebody who is, you know, restless and wants to bounce around and wants to try different things and work with younger people or transition from one company to another every two or three years? You know, different people want different things. And Mm. there is a place for all of those people because agencies that require those kinds of people do exist. It's not like there's one model employee uh, creative director role that an agency can find and that's the only type that anybody ever wants but mm-hmm. i think if if the industry starts looking at people in terms of how they will fit rather than just in terms of the awards that they've won or the profile that they have within the industry or you know the fact that they're really good mates with one of the partners but also if the employees themselves take a better view of you know who's doing the stuff that I want to be doing, who's really interesting, which, you know, which partners are the people that inspire me? I want to go, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear footballers talking about, I want to go and work with manager X because I know I'll learn a lot from them. And there's zero difference between them and any other employee. You know, if you want to, if you want to really, really hone your craft, you go and work with people who are better than you are and Mm. people who are more experienced, but also people who inspire you and challenge you and who've made work that you love, work that resonates with you. And there's no difference there between, you know, a a style of football and an advert, because Mm. that's what you should be chasing. You want to, you want to find people. And, you know, I, I, as I said, Joe Devine, our creative director is for me, that that's one of the great things about working with TIFO is that we we bounce off each other really really well like that there is a a strong working relationship together there which makes both of us better um Mm. and we find that really interesting and engaging um and i think it's it's not just i mean yeah you can be cynical and say people just need a job because they need money and obviously that's an economic reality for a lot of people and there are other factors at play here, but at the same time, if you want to create a really great working environment, you want people who want to be there and you want to create a culture that welcomes those people and then makes the best of them. And in that regard, an agency is like a, a well-run football team. One would hope so. One would hope so. Alex, I really appreciate your insights here today. I love uh, what you're doing at TIFO. Where's the best place for people to find you on the internet? Um, so TIFO itself, just TIFO football on, on YouTube. That's the name of the channel. And we're TIFO football underscore on Twitter. And I'm tagged in enough of the videos that you'll be able to find me should you be interested. Mm. Again, I appreciate your insights. Thank you very much for joining me on Sweathead today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Peace.